These are the beginning words of Christ's kingdom manifesto. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our glory to study it and to live it out, and we pray by your spirit we would do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, we're beginning a new series today on the Beatitudes, and what the Beatitudes is about is enjoying kingdom living, and it's my desire for every one of you that you would uh, grow in your joy and in your sense of fulfillment during this coming year. I think there's something wrong with our Christianity uh, when we cannot fulfill Paul's admonition in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And yet I have to confess there are times where my joy lags and I have to go back to the fountain of joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Billy uh, Billy Sunday once said, If you have no joy in your religion, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. (laughs) And I think that's true. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is, Lord willing, helping you to plug some of those leaks so that you can have the joy of the Lord. And uh, today is just going to be an overview of the Beatitudes. And then, Lord willing, I'm not guaranteeing it, but Lord willing, we'll take eight weeks after that and look at a Beatitude uh, each week. But there are a number of controversies, a number of issues on interpretation and things like that that uh, really almost demand that there be an introductory sermon. And that's what today is about. And the first controversy is, how do you translate the word blessed or blessed? And people are all over the map on this one. Some have gone to great lengths to try to say that there is no way that this could be a subjective happiness or joy, that it is only dealing with perhaps some future blessing to those who are going through misery uh, right now. And uh, they say that to translate it literally, as many people do, happy are those who mourn is an insult to our intelligence. Those two can't go together. If you're mourning, you can't be happy. Well, I, I disagree with that on several levels. First of all, I have literally seen people radiant with joy after they have confessed their sins And even while the tears of repentance are still on their cheeks, you can see the burden has been lifted and God has ushered them into incredible joy. But God gives supernatural joy, even happiness, in the midst of other difficulties as well. And if you look just a little bit further, verses 10 through 12, I think Jesus quite clearly defines what the word blessed means. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's the eighth beatitude. Now he goes on and he explains what is meant by that. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's saying, yeah, there is an objective blessing to this. You're going to be rewarded in heaven. And there are some other objective blessings that we will be looking at. But you can't rule out the subjective blessing either because he speaks of rejoicing and being exceedingly glad. And in Luke, he says, leap for joy. So I think that there is, uh, that there is the subjective and the objective as well. Now, granted, it is a difficult word to translate into English. I've got a commentary that spends an entire page looking at various ways of translating it, trying to explain, and he finally comes to the conclusion there just isn't a, an English word that can adequately explain what's here. It's not the usual word for blessed, which is eulogetes. This is makarios. And let me just give you some of the wide range of translations of this word, just so you can get a little bit of a feel for what is behind it. It's translated as happy, blissful, blessed, fortunate, enviable, enviably happy, enviably fortunate, oh the joy, and oh the bliss. So what is this blessing? Is it uh, something we subjectively feel, or is it something objective that God bestows upon us? Is it something we're presently experiencing, or is it something that's off in the future? Well, I really believe it's a combination of all four of those. And uh, there's various dimensions of that. And if you look at the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, makarios, this word here, is translating a number of different Hebrew words that show all four of those dimensions, the subjective, the objective, the presently experienced, and the, the, the future uh, experience uh, of it as well. And so uh, I think... Uh, what we need to do is realize uh, that we can't be reductionist ab about this, and we, for sure, because we have not experienced the subjective, can't rule out the subjective uh, from it. These things that he's talking about and these beatitudes are intended to bring us into the most blessed Christian walk that we can do. God wants us to enjoy kingdom living, and he wants us to have a fulfilled Christian life. Okay. Second thing that I want to point out is that the structure, the very way in which these Beatitudes are written, teach us at least five things. And the first thing that they teach us is grace. You could not get a stronger death blow to works righteousness than the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying you don't get into the kingdom by what you earn, by what you contribute uh, to it. Instead, you are coming absolutely poverty-stricken. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I, I cling. And so, if we were able to earn the kingdom, then we would have something of which to boast. We'd have nothing of which to mourn, and certainly we wouldn't be hungering and thirsting after a righteousness that's outside of us, given to us as a gift. Um, the very structure teaches us about grace. It starts with poverty, it ends with riches. Let me give you some other indicators here. It t talks about grace. It uh, starts with poverty and inability, and it progresses in the second half to deeds of righteousness. So it's not just the kingdom that's given to us. Where do we get those deeds of righteousness? It comes from the Lord Jesus as well. Uh, notice, too, it begins with emptiness, progresses to fullness, and then concludes in the second half of the Beatitudes to overflowing. So God's grace is so rich, it not only provides everything we need, we overflow with this grace into the lives of others. 
Notice it begins with character and it ends with conduct. Okay, those are all hints. What he's talking about here is grace. This is an incredible uh, uh, lesson on grace. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is that. The second thing that the structure shows us is that these are kingdom principles he's talking about. Now, the reason I say that is because Beatitudes 1 and 8 are like bookends, and they both promise the same thing. For theirs is, and that's present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the moment that a believer comes into the kingdom of God as a pauper, having nothing in his hands, God bestows upon him a kingdom with all of its riches, all of its power, all of its authority. And sandwiched in between those two kingdom statements are all of these kingdom blessings. It's the kingdom. And it's grace that brings us comfort, gives us the ability to have stewardship of the earth, satisfaction and righteousness, mercy, a closeness to God, and the wonderful title, Sons of God. And when you think about it, those are the things that every human heart longs for. Now, they may word it differently. Uh, they, 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 they may say that they long for security or they long for a sense of belonging. Why do a lot of people join gangs? They want to belong. They want approval uh, from other people. This gives a sense of fulfillment. And we're going to be looking at all of those uh, things in the next eight weeks, but they're kingdom blessings sandwiched in between these two statements. Now, the third thing I learn about the, this structure is that it starts with our relationship with God. That's Beatitudes 1 through 4. And then it moves on to our relationship with man in Beatitudes 5 through 8. And I think this is very logical. Once you understand God's grace and how it works, until you are drinking from God, you don't have the life-giving waters to be able to minister to other people. Until God, his relationship with you is straightened out, you can't be ministering and straightening out relationships uh, that God has placed into your life. Until you have learned to enter the kingdom through the cross, deal with your sins, not legalistically, but by his grace, you're not going to be in a position to be able to minister to other people. So we can only give to others what we ourselves have received from God. So I think that's what's in indicated by this structure. He starts with God. He moves on to others. Now, of course, I think the implication is if you're not loving others, 1 John says you don't love God, but it starts with God, moves to others. Fourth thing that commentaries point out is that these eight Beatitudes are all a package deal. And if you're trying to fill in the blanks there, package deal, okay, you cannot miss out on any one of these. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, these things all begin to happen to you. And you're going to spend a whole lifetime of entering into them more and more, but it's not as if, okay, some people, they're going to be mourners, and other people are going to be peacekeepers. No. Christians have to take this whole ball of wax as a package deal. The fifth thing about the structuring is that the inheritance of the kingdom, and you see that in the first and eighth beatitude, that's in the present tense, all of the other Beatitudes have a promise that's in the future tense. Now, it is true, if you've inherited the kingdom right now, you're in it, you've got its authority and everything, then you really have all of these blessings in your possession. But I still think there's a significance to the fact that the other six are in the future tense. And I think what they're indicating is that there is a growth process of entering into these things. 
more and more in the future you're going to be entering into them, even though you possess them all right now, it's really at the second coming that the fullest expression of every one of these things is going to happen. Yes, we inherit the earth more and more now, but when do the saints fully inherit the earth? It's at the second coming. When are the saints most fully comforted? It's when every tear is wiped away from our eyes at the second coming. When do we most fully appreciate the incredible depths of God's grace and mercy? Well, we don't, we're blind to a lot of our sins right now, but when we get uh, glorified and we look back on our life, we're going to be blown away by the sense of God's mercy. Uh, when is it that we f most fully enter into this concept that he talks here about they shall be called the sons of God? Well, we are adopted right now, according to some scriptures, but Romans 8, verse 23, look that up sometime. It talks about adoption of being at the second coming. So you've got Reformed people who say, when are you adopted? Well, it's the second coming. And others say, no, it's, it's at our conversion. It's both, but it's at the second coming that the most full expression and understanding and experience of that sonship is going to be entered into. So we'll be looking at some of those things, but for now, just realize there is an already and there is a not yet. There is a present experience, but there's also something that we are more and more going to be pressing into. It's our upward calling in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've not experienced these things at all, you're not yet in the kingdom because you have to, the moment you enter in, there's the experience of some of this stuff, but you're going to be pressing and growing more and more throughout your life. So that's the, that's the fifth thing that I learned from this passage. It teaches us about grace, present reality of the kingdom, the need to be filled with God if we're to give out to men, the fact it's a package deal, and then fifthly, we need to enter into the enjoyment of these more and more. Now, I do want to highlight the grace part of those things under Roman numeral 3 because I think the Beatitudes were intended to destroy legalism and actually more than legalism. They were intended to destroy all four counterfeits that were competing with kingdom grace in the first century. And if you do a study of church history, uh, you'll see these philosophies in every age. They come by different names, but uh, let me quickly list them out. First one was Phariseeism. The Pharisees were the legalists, the traditionalists, the ones who wanted to go back to the good old times. They felt, hey, if we could just get the right people in office, pass the right laws, get people to do the right thing, we'll bring in the kingdom and everything will be solved. And so their remedy was go back, go back to the good old ways, the way they were before. And it was a programmatic approach to sanctification. If you do the right things, you'll be transformed. Now, the Sadducees totally disagreed with that. Uh, their approach, they were the liberals, and they urged the people to update their religion and to try to fit in with Rome. Their slogan would be, get with the times. You know, you're, you're not going to make any progress if you do what the Pharisees are doing. They were the broad-minded progressives. And so if the Pharisees were the most conservative of the Republicans, the, uh, the Sadducees would be the progressive Republicans and the Democrats uh, that were out there. They were, they'd say, hey, we've got to compromise. We've got to get along. We've got to get with the times if we're going to achieve anything of significance. Now let's apply this in the church. The emergent church shares many of the same features of the Sadducees. If we don't get with the times and get relevant, we're going to lose out big time. And so 
The Sadducees felt, okay, they're living in Roman times. We need to be adapting. We need to be fitting in with the Romans. Otherwise, we're going to lose the future. We're going to lose our church. Well, that's exactly what the emergent people are saying. They're saying we live in postmodern times, and if we don't become postmodern, we're not going to be able to identify with people who are out there. We won't be able to reach them. We'll lose our youth. We're going to lose the church uh, in the future. And so really, there is nothing new under the sun. So we've got the Pharisee counterfeit, we've got the Sadducee counterfeit, and the Essenes. Oh, they're the ones a little bit closer to home. These are the guys who wanted to separate from culture. And there's a certain aspect that, that makes sense. We want to separate from sin. But these guys went off into their own little communities, and they really became culturally irrelevant. Their goal was not to transform society. It was to get out of society. Their motto would be to get out. Okay, so the Pharisees go back, Sadducees go forward, the Essenes, their motto is get out, and yet they did not solve the problems in culture either. Not only did they not transform culture, they lost their own children. Okay, this is not the remedy that the Sermon on the Mount gives to the problems that we face in culture. Now, the other extreme were the zealots. They were a revolutionary group that sought to overthrow Rome, and they tried to kill, to destroy Rome, and any Jew who would cooperate with Rome. Now, the problem with the zealots, they did not have any positive, uh, not menu, they didn't have any positive uh, thing to replace it with. All they were concerned about, tear down all of this wretched stuff. We'll think about building it up later. But they were the radicals. They were the revolutionaries. And all four our counterfeits. In contrast, the Sermon on the Mount calls us to look to Christ, to seek His righteousness, His kingdom first. It was to repent of our sins, to seek Christ as first of all, and then all of these things would be added to us. So it calls us to stop trusting in princes, to stop trusting in our own right hand, and to begin trusting in God's grace. Now, grace looks weak in the eyes of the world, and it takes faith to really follow God's blueprints that we're going to be seeing uh, in these Beatitudes. Now, it is an irony. I think irony is the right word for this. It is an irony that misery is the gate to happiness. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he shows how poverty of spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting after righteousness is an absolute first prerequisite before you can enter into the joy uh, of the Lord. And today, if we feel secure in tradition, just like the, the Pharisees did, what we're going to be doing, really, is we're not going to be measuring our lives by God's standard. We're going to be measuring our lives by what other people think. And if we are up to the level of the status quo, we're going to feel quite comfortable with our lives. It's really not until we become desperate and our, our uh, sense of security is devastated by verse 20. In fact, I want you to look at verse 20 that we're going to be looking to the right source. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that would have been extremely puzzling words to those Jews. What do you mean exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? They're the most holy of the holy. These are the guys who have tried the hardest. And that was Christ's point. No one is perfect. And you can't get into heaven without perfection unless you look to Jesus, cast your sins upon Him, and receive His perfect righteousness as your clothing. You can't get into the kingdom. That means giving up on yourself 
and it means following after the Lord wholeheartedly. And so until we begin to see the true high standards of God's moral law, uh, we'll never experience the kind of poverty of spirit that the Beatitudes talk about. Uh, We won't mourn because there won't be anything to mourn about. We're not going to hunger and thirst after righteousness because we're going to think, I've arrived, right? So really these things do hold together. It's so easy for us to measure our spiritual status by what others think, and I think that's one of the reasons why he gives the Beatitudes is to shake us up. And so the Beatitudes challenge the security that the Pharisees felt in tradition. They challenge the security that the Sadducees felt, not in tradition in this case, but in wealth, in connections, in civil government. And what Jesus goes as he gives an exposition of the Beatitudes later on, he says, look, if you're not being persecuted by those Pharisees and by the barons that are out there and by the wealthy and by the civil government, it may be an indication you're not yet in the kingdom. What's with that? Well, what's with that is that Jesus wants them to stop trusting in anything, any idols, and to put their faith in him alone. That's when we enter into strength. That's when we begin seeing the kingdom uh, properly lived out. But then there would have been separatists who say, oh yeah, we don't like the Pharisees, we don't like the Sadducees, we shouldn't be trusting in government. But lest the separatists amongst us leave and just say, we're just abandoning culture altogether, he says, the meek shall inherit the earth. This is not about escapism. This is about entering into your inheritance. And unless the zealots try to inherit the earth through violent revolution, Christ tells them, I want you to work with the, uh, the Romans. I want you to befriend them. I want you to do nice things to them. I want you to be uh, uh, peacemakers, to be merciful to the enemies. So his point was, you cannot live these principles out apart from grace. He starts with emptiness in verse 3, being filled in verse 6, finally overflowing in ministry to others in the second half. He starts, you know, he's saying, blessed are those who mourn. He's saying, misery is the key to happiness. Not misery with God, not misery with God's law, not misery with church or devotions or anything like that, but it's misery with your own unfaithfulness, with your sinfulness, with the pride that keeps cropping up in your heart. You mourn over the things that separate you and God. You mourn over the things that you cannot subdue in your own flesh. And you say to the Lord, Lord, I hate these things. Please subdue my flesh underneath me. Make me to be as holy as it is possible for a sinful person to be. Until God makes us mourn over our own self-sufficiency, there cannot be kingdom living. And so what I'm wanting to say to you this morning is this is not a paradigm for trying harder, okay? In fact, there is no trying here. How do you get poor in spirit? It's not through trying. You know, God makes you poor in spirit. He brings you to, uh, to that position. You either are or you are not. And so this is a paradigm for making self-righteous, self-satisfied, or apathetic Christians realize that getting into the kingdom is hopeless without God's help. And that's why the first set of four Beatitudes deal with our relationship to God, the second with our relationship to man. Like I said before, until you straighten out the first, you cannot help to straighten out the second. Um, We cannot start with conduct until God changes our heart and changes our character. So the first Beatitudes deal with how God is changing us from the inside out. He's changing our character so that our conduct can line up 
with what God's Word uh, has to say. I heard this story from Salem Kirbin, and I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not, but he says that when the Berlin Wall first went up, uh, there, there was a, a group of people from the East Berlin side that took a whole truckload of smelly garbage and dumped it on the West Berlin side of the border crossing during the middle of the night. And so the next day, a bunch of uh, East Ber- uh, West Berliners thought, you know, let's, let's do something different. They got a whole truckload of bread, milk, and other groceries, neatly stacked it on the East Berlin side of the border crossing and put a huge banner up that said, each gives what he has. (laughs) And you know what? Apart from grace, all we have to give is garbage. Now, our garbage might be very beautifully packaged, but Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags as filthy rags. That's what these Beatitudes are teaching us. And don't think he's just teaching unbelievers here. He's teaching his disciples. If you look at verses 1 and 2, yeah, the crowds are out there. But who's he teaching? It's his disciples who are gathered around him. He's teaching them these things. In other words, he's teaching them, you don't just begin the kingdom by dependence upon God. You don't just begin the kingdom with a sense of your inadequacy. You continue every day of your life totally dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul said. Well, let me give a different scripture before I give you what Paul said. Church of Laodicea. We're not talking about heathen here. We're talking about a church, church of Laodicea. They said, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And God's response to them was, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, that that really is our walk all of our Christian lives. It doesn't just start there. Daily, we have got to come to the recognition, Lord, I cannot do it without your strength. Nothing that I contribute is going to be worthwhile if it does not flow from your Spirit. I long for your Spirit to work through me. And so take seriously the order that's given in the Beatitudes, I think these distinguish true, genuine Christianity from false religion. It distinguishes true Christianity from a formal Christianity that does not have the power of God's Spirit uh, within them. Our natural tendency is to just get busy, 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 trying to please God. And I can do it as a pastor. I have done it as a pastor, where I've engaged in ministry just by the power of my own flesh. And the flesh profits nothing, is what the Scripture says. It does not profit one little bit. World religion is the story of man seeking after God, whereas the Beatitudes is the story of God seeking after man and bringing him to a place where he's utterly bankrupt, unable to do anything, so that God can fill this empty vessel full to overflowing and bringing blessing into the lives of others. So if you want a Christianity that does not have legalism, does not have drudgery, dustiness, dryness to it, What you need to realize is you've got to start with emptiness and enter into God's fullness. You've got to start with inability and weakness. Why? Because Paul says it's when we realize that we are weak that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. We've got to start with our relationship with God and then once realigned there, move to our relationship with man. Start with character. Move out to conduct. And so how you start your day shows whether you're a legalist, 
a Sadducee, a, a um, Essene, or what was the other guy? Oh, a radical, a zealot, yeah. Uh, it really, what's in common to all of these people, as radically different as they were, what was in common is they thought they could do what needed to be done in their own strength. And yet I see that in our Christian lives all the time. I see it in my own life, and I have to weep over it and repent of it. I start with activity rather than going to the Lord and saying, Lord, I desire your strength in this day. I desire your wisdom. I want to follow after you. I know I'm going to stumble apart from you, so fill me. Start your day by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there's a fourth thing you need to realize before you can properly interpret the Beatitudes, and that is that the Beatitudes are an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, most of our outlines... You, you, you list out the A, B, C, D, E, and then, then you go through that same order. But frequently in the Hebrew, you give an outline and then you give an exposition in the reverse order. Now, this is spoken of as a chiasm, and many cultures have this. And uh, a chiasm is an A, B, C, C, B, A order, okay? So the A's are the same subject, B's are the same subject, C's are the same subject. So if you look in your outline you'll see that the order of this uh, Beatitudes, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and then he comments in reverse order, H, G, F, E, D, C, B, A, right? So if the last Beatitude deals with persecution for righteousness' sake, it makes perfect sense that the first verses that he begins giving an exposition, verses 11 through 20, are going to be dealing with persecution and the standard of righteousness for which they were persecuted. And that's exactly what we find there. If the second to last beatitude deals with peacemaking, then it makes sense that the next section of the sermon from verses 21 through 26 deals with the issues that are involved in peacemaking. Heart issues, speech issues, interpersonal issues. And he applies those three things to peacemaking amongst brothers, peacemaking amongst the, uh, the pagans. If the third from last beatitude deals with purity of heart, well, then it makes sense that verses 27 through 37 deal with adultery of the heart, lust in the heart, various forms of heart deceitfulness and uh, heart insincerity. In fact, let's just go through each of those uh, levels. Why don't you look at chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 38, and just move your eyes. Just scan over from 538 all the way through forward to chapter 6, verse 4. Okay, just look at the, the, the kind of subject matter that's in there. And I think you will see that Jesus is dealing with the most radical kinds of mercy that you could possibly give. Mercy to a person who slaps you on your cheek. Mercy to a thief. Mercy to a Roman soldier who's abusive. Loving your enemies. And in the first few chapters of, uh, verses of chapter 6, various kinds of mercy ministries. And even there, he's pretty radical. He says, hey, why don't you guys try doing mercy ministries that nobody is going to see you doing? So this is a whole section on how God uh, blesses uh, the, uh, the, the, the merciful uh, uh, so that they shall obtain mercy. And again, you can see kingdom living is not about trying harder because in our human flesh, we're not going to be able to do these kinds of things. It's a radical, radical a recipe that most people, if they were in those situations, they would want revenge. They'd at least get bitter. They'd get upset, but he's saying, no, I want you to overcome all of these things by appropriating from heaven. This is the kingdom of heaven we're talking about. Appropriating from heaven 
the resources you need so that you are not overcome by evil. So it's a radical exposition of mercy. Next section deals with the fourth beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay, what expresses true hunger for God? Well, chapter 6, verse 5 through 18 says that prayers that nobody can see you praying and fasting that nobody can see you fasting shows a genuine hunger for God rather than a hunger for man's approval. It's easy to pray. In fact, the Pharisees did it all the time when others can see you praying because it gives you a sense of approval from man. But he says an evidence of a real heart hunger is that you are praying when nobody else sees you praying. So do you feel empty? You want to be filled? Do you have this kind of a heart hunger? Ask God to give you the kind of radical prayer life that Jesus talks about in, in, in that section. Next section starts in chapter 6 and verse 19 and then goes all the way through to the end of, of that chapter. And basically that section is dealing with blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Now, as you work through those verses, you see that meekness is not weakness. There is no way it could be weakness. In fact, the word meek was used of a tamed stallion. This stallion still had plenty of energy, get up and go, but he was using every bit of that energy in the master's service. So how do you tell if you're meek or not? Well, Jesus says one of the evidences of whether you're meek is where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Is it in pleasing the master? Or are you holding on to some idol, holding on to something that's keeping you from serving the master? Uh, meekness can be seen in whether you serve God or mammon. It can be seen in whether you worry about the future. Or are you going to trust your master to take care of you? And you might say, yeah, but it says the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, in that exposition section, Jesus said the same thing. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, uh, God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you're not seeking your own agendas and rebelliously running off. That is true meekness. All of these things being added unto you, that's inheriting the earth. It's a, it's a wonderful paradigm, a wonderful exposition of that particular, uh, particular beatitude. God loves to give a stewardship trust of the earth and absolutely everything in the earth to those who are meek. So you want to be blessed? You want to be fulfilled? You want to have all of the resources you need? Be meek. Be meek. God will trust you with more of a stewardship opportunity. Now the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is dealt with in Matthew 7 and verses 1 through 6 where we mourn over our own sins. We grieve over our own sins so much that our sins seem like they're a huge log in our eye compared to the speck that is in our brother's eye. In fact, our sins are so overwhelming we're not even tempted to judge our brother. That's how much we're mourning over my, our own sins. And you know, I look at my own life and I say, Lord, I am not there. I am not there. My tendency is to see the log in my brother's eye and only think that I've got a speck in my own eye. And so I pray to the Lord, take away my blindness because I know if the Apostle Paul near the end of his life thought of himself as being the chief of sinners, I certainly do not have the vision that Paul had. I don't understand the depths of the depravity of my heart. 
So he's saying when you're entering into the kingdom, God's spirit is heavy upon you. You're going to be in a position where the log in your own eye is far greater than the sins that you see in other people. I mean, it's a matter of perspective because his spotlight is shining in your heart. But what that means is the greater your sin is, the greater you're going to be overwhelmed with his forgiveness and the more you're going to love the Lord. It's just going to radiate from you. Now, that's not, that section is not saying that we never mourn over the sins of the world. Exactly the opposite. He says the more you mourn over your own sins, the more you're going to mourn over the sins of the world. You're going to be in a position where you're going to be effective in taking that speck out of your brother's eye. And you're not going to be giving what is holy to the dogs or casting pearls before swine. So he's saying, obviously, we have to deal with the sin that is out there. But he's saying you're going to deal it without a speck of self-righteousness or condemnation in your heart. Why? Because you know there but for the grace of God you would be going as well. So can you see how each of these sections really is an exposition of these Beatitudes? Now the first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. I chose a heart that's absent of pride because we have nothing to be proud of and, and nothing worthy to offer up to God in ourselves. Here's how Paul words it. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, because he does have the spirit in him, so he's, he's distinguishing there. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to per perform what is good, I, <clears throat> I do not find. <coughs> <clears throat> so <clears throat> this makes us totally, totally dependent upon God. And the kind of dependence that God talks about in this beatitude is expressed in prayer of expectation that verses 7 through 12, as well as the parable of the two gates, the two trees, and the two pillars. They spell out that poverty of spirit. So if you read the beatitudes as an outline of the Sermon on the Mount, everything begins to open up and it'll show you the error of pietism, liberalism, socialism, pride, self-sufficiency, legalism, apathy, you name it. Well, you might be surprised by this, but uh, you dig out some of these liberal commentaries, they actually use the Beatitudes to teach communism, for example, socialism, just like, what? <laughs> it's the exact opposite. Uh, and there was another weird one that, that was trying to compare the Beatitudes to Confucianism and showing, you know, this kind of this one world religion kind of stuff. But if you realize that the Beatitudes are opened up and then they're expressed, uh, given an exposition of in reverse order, then uh, every one of these, these uh, false interpretations becomes utter foolishness. So... Just look at the outline there. Once you see how the outline uh, uh, turn, uh, turns out, then you'll be able to very, very easily teach your children what these Beatitudes are about. There's one more thing I want to highlight for us to get the maximum blessing from these Beatitudes, and that is that Jesus really wanted his disciples to enjoy the kingdom, and he wanted to show them how to inherit the blessing of the Lord. He is not glorified when we do not enjoy the Lord. What's man's chief end? It's not just to glorify Him. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So if God delights in delighting His people, 
then the opposite is also true. If we're never delighted, we never get beyond sadness into happiness. He is not delighted. He wants us to be delighted in Him. Now, it's true. We've already said that the gateway to happiness is misery, but you don't have to stay there forever, right? It's the gateway to happiness, right? It's not the gateway to more misery. But if the gate to happiness is misery, and if the road of happiness is holiness, then the destination of happiness every single day is fellowship with God. And all you have to do is look at every one of the blessings that he lists in these Beatitudes, and uh, I think you'll see that kingdom living was intended to be rich and fulfilling. It's the best life. It's the most joyful life. It's supposed to be a life that is enviable, as one uh, person translated this. So if you look at your life and you say, no, I don't think anybody would want to live like I'm living. I don't think anybody would want to have what I'm having. Then you still need to be pressing into the upward calling that you have in Christ Jesus because he wants the pagans. Romans 11. He wants them to become jealous of the gospel and all of its impact uh, in your life. So let's look at those blessings. Verse 3. Theirs is, that's a present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Before we've done a thing, while we're paupers, utterly bankrupt, God bestows upon us the kingdom, all of its riches, its inheritance, its spiritual authority. And He does that before we have anything to bring to the table, anything for which we can contribute. Well, that means you can have joy in the Lord right the very first day that you become a Christian. You don't have to wait for 10 years. Oh, maybe when I become really mature, then I'm going to enter into this happiness and into this joy and into this blessing. No, if He's given you everything, you've got the kingdom, you've got every reason to rejoice. Now, of course, Satan's going to try to rob you of those blessings, and in the coming weeks, we're going to see how he robs us of that joy. And so you have to fight for that joy every single day, but you have the ability to have this joy and this happiness of the Lord, even as the most immature Christian, the earliest Christian coming into the faith. But there's... Here's the question. Are you claiming what is yours? He's given you the kingdom, which means you have the authority. Kingdom authority, kingdom blessings, resources. Are you claiming them? It is yours. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 3, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. Verse 4 says, they shall be comforted. What an incredible blessing. The comfort, the encouragement of God in our lives. If you're lacking in that this morning, place your faith in verse 4. He who has said it will do it. They shall inherit the earth. Wow, what an incredible, incredible promise. Provision for every need that you may have. And Jesus says, this ought to free you up from worrying about the future. So we've got the enjoyment of provisions. But if you're seeking mainly those things rather than the giver of those things, those things will elude you. Some of us spend so much time uh, pursuing our health that we fail to pursue the health giver. We spend so much time seeking the four G's of security you know what the four C's of security are, don't you? Guns, gold, groceries, and gas. <laughs> but 
But you, those are legitimate. But you spend so much time seeking the four C's of security, you miss the first G, God. Okay, He's the giver of security. Some of us spend so much time focusing on money, we fail to realize we need to be worshiping, serving, immersed in the God who blessed Job and who blessed Abraham uh, with riches. We are so intent on our children, they almost become idols, and we forget to worship and serve and every day be following the wisdom of the God who has given His promises to our children. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These things will be added to you. They shall be filled is the next promise. Speaking of satisfaction. So if we have emptiness, uh, uh, any, any spiritual sense of emptiness, God can fill it to overflowing. They shall obtain mercy. Now that's a wonderful thing. Absence of fear of judgment. A, a, a clean conscience. Tremendous blessing. Security in His grace. They shall see God. That's spiritual vision. You know, the church fathers, when you read much in them, you realize they talked about this a great deal. They spoke of it as the beatific vision. God can give to you the greatest pleasure possible to man, the pleasure of God's presence and His approval in your life by His grace. They shall see God. They shall be called the children of God. That's bearing the likeness of the Father more and more every day, being conformed to Christ's image. We want to bear God's character so profoundly that the Sermon on the Mount can say that men may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so even that's a joy to see Christ making us more and more into the image of the Father. And so as we go through these Beatitudes in the next few weeks, uh, they're going to show us how to enjoy kingdom living, how to find the maximum fulfillment possible, and it is not through being self-centered. It's by abandoning self, dying to self, and living totally for Christ, and He will never, ever let you down. A minister in the 1800s said, The Lord Jesus spreads a large table every day. And he wants us to enjoy his wonderful spread. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. And as we look into your beatitudes in these next few weeks, I pray that our hearts would be enraptured, filled with joy, encouraged, strengthened uh, with the promises that you give. Uh, Father, so many times there are things of this world that are worthless, that weigh us down and keep us from fully enjoying you forever. And I pray that whatever is in our own fleshly life that is hindering the enjoyment of your kingdom and the enjoyment of you, I pray that you would put it under the feet of Jesus Christ and crush it, cut off the head of these vile monsters that seek to rob us of that joy. Uh, anything in this world and any demonic that comes against this your people to rob them of their joy and in their enjoyment of you. I pray that you would strike it off from them and cause them to enter into the inheritance that you have ordained and as the Psalms say, to be able to drink from the river of your pleasures. Fill this your people with your spirit and we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.